and welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In response to the emergence of the novel coronavirus now known as SARS-CoV-2 and that causes COVID-19 infections, the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning has been producing an ongoing series of podcast episodes related to issues around the provision of family planning services while COVID-19 is still present in the United States and U.S. territories. In today's episode, we'll be discussing COVID-19 and racial and geographic health disparities. Our guest today is Mari Lashwayo Davis, MD, MPH. Dr. Mari is an infectious disease physician at the John Cochran VA Medical Center, where she's the lead HIV clinician, graduate medical education coordinator, and outpatient parenteral antibiotic therapy supervisor. Dr. Mari received her medical degree from the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and a master's in public health degree from the Case Western Reserve University and completed her internal medicine residency at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Additionally, she completed an infectious disease fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine. Over the past year, Dr. Mahdi has been a featured medical contributor on the subject of COVID-19, particularly its impact on marginalized populations, and has made appearances on CNN, the BBC, MSNBC, and others. Finally, she was recently appointed to the City of St. Louis Board of Health. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Mahdi. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. To begin, can you tell us about how your role as an advocate for addressing health disparities works with your job as an infectious disease physician, especially around COVID-19? Well, first I'll say that I don't think the two are in any way separated. I believe that if you do the work of medicine and you directly take care of patients at any level, that your job, for lack of a better word, should be around advocacy for the most disenfranchised, for our most marginalized populations, for people that we have known for decades now are typically left behind because of the systemic and institutional racism that prevents them from accessing care in the same way others in society can. So for me, this became much more urgent during COVID, but to be very clear, COVID-19 joins a very long list of disease states in medicine that include heart disease, that include diabetes, that include kidney disease, that include cancer, and many others where Black and brown communities are disproportionately affected. So this speaks to a systemic and institutional level issue that needs to be addressed and, quite frankly, is long overdue. My belief is that if we do that, We can do better in our hospitals, in our outpatient clinics, in our community organizations, in the care of people when we've been equipped to make sure that every person that walks through our doors, every person that comes into our hospitals is treated equitably. And moving to a wider look, can you provide us with some breakdowns of the statistics around racial morbidity and mortality rates with COVID-19 in the USA at the moment? Absolutely. So the CDC is obviously a great resource for this, but will also give you up-to-date statistics around what is happening 
with COVID and other disease entities. So when we look at COVID-19 cases, there are three main groups that have been disproportionately affected. Those are American Indian or Alaska Natives, Black or African Americans, and Latinx populations. And we look at how they're affected in three main areas. So cases, just who actually became infected with COVID, hospitalizations, and deaths. And for all three of those categories, when compared to white, non-Hispanic persons, they are much more likely to have higher case rates, higher hospitalizations, and higher deaths. We can take a look at this one at a time. So when we look at cases, American Indian or Alaskan natives are 1.8 times more likely to get COVID than white non-Hispanic persons. That number is 1.4 times more likely in Black or African Americans. And Hispanics, that number is 1.7 times more likely. With hospitalizations, the same trend is true, but even higher. For American Indians or Alaska Natives, they are four times more likely to be hospitalized due to COVID compared to white non-Hispanic persons, 3.7 times more likely in the case of Black or African Americans, and 4.1 times more likely for the Latinx population. And lastly, in deaths, this trend remains the same, where American Indian or Alaska Natives are 2.6 times more likely to die from COVID compared to white non-Hispanic persons, that number higher at 2.8 times more likely in both Black or African Americans and the Latinx population. Truly staggering. This has translated to other statistics. We see that African Americans, historically and currently, are much less likely to participate in clinical trials. And this, again, from the CDC, where we can see percentage of patients by race in clinical trials. And African-Americans routinely since 2015 make up no more than 5 to 10 percent of clinical trials. And that number actually consistently being only 5 percent of clinical trial participants. Staggering when you think that this population represents 12 percent of the U.S. population each year. And then lastly, obviously, the hot topic right now is vaccine uptake. And unfortunately, the percentage of those vaccinated who are Black is far lower than their share of both the general population and the healthcare force. When we look at those numbers, they're overwhelmingly low in most states, being anywhere from 1% to 2%, which with the highest states in Mississippi and Maryland being just over 15%. Those numbers are woefully inadequate when we think about the statistics I just told you about how those groups are disproportionately affected. Most of us know that there are a number of contributing factors to not just these COVID health disparities, but health disparities among racial groups in general. But we may not know what all of them are. Can you outline some of the major ones that have had an impact with COVID? For example, pre-existing health conditions or socioeconomic factors, environmental factors, etc.? Well, first, I think we do need to tackle mistrust because... It's a hot topic, but I want to start with it because I have to make clear that while there is a lot of mistrust and what people like to refer to as vaccine hesitancy specifically, both things can be true, that people can have mistrust or vaccine hesitancy and not, and so choose not to partake in the system or to take a vaccine. But at the same time, and even more so, 
There are many in our community who want access to reliable and equitable and compassionate health care and who want the vaccine, but who do not have access. And we just don't hear enough of that. I think the scapegoat is mistrust. But let's be clear, both of these exist at the same time and both of these need to be addressed at the same time. So the first thing I'd like to tackle is mistrust. And I think it's important for people to understand the history of where this comes from. And we cannot talk about the current dynamics without understanding the past. Unfortunately, the history of human experimentation is as old as the practice of medicine. The use of slaves and free Black people as subjects for dissection and medical experimentation was actually very commonplace during slavery. They were often subjects of medical experiments, slaves were, because physicians at the time needed bodies and the state considered them property. They were denied legal rights to refuse. There are terrible examples, but I'll give just one of Dr. Marion Sims, who was at the time called the father of modern gynecology, who used three Alabama slave women to develop an operation to repair vesicovaginal fistulas. In his own words, he says, the whole urethra and the neck of the bladder were in a high state of inflammation, which came from the foreign substance. It had to come away and there was nothing to do but to pull it away by main force. Lucy's agony was extreme. She was much prostrated and I thought she was going to die. But by irrigating the parts of the bladder, she recovered with great rapidity. Only then did he attempt it with anesthesia on white women volunteers. Many other examples come into play. There's Henrietta Lacks, who in 1951 died from terminal cancer, and her cells at the time were collected without consent by George Gay of John Hopkins University. Her family did not even know that they were being used for medical experimentation, which they're used to these days. HeLa cells are commonly known in medicine. Only 20 years afterwards was her family made aware and still were not compensated. And obviously, we cannot talk about mistrust without talking about the Tuskegee experiment, where Black men in Mackin County, Alabama, with syphilis, were told that they were participating in a study to receive free health care, but instead were given placebos while researchers studied the progression of the disease. And even after 1947, when penicillin became standard of care, this continued till 1972, resulting in 28 deaths, 100 more dying from related complications, 40 spouses being diagnosed, and 19 children born with congenital syphilis. If you cannot understand with those few examples, and I assure you there's many more, where mistrust and conspiracy theories and people not wanting to take the direction of healthcare physicians come from, then it's willful ignorance. But you're absolutely correct in saying that there are other reasons that specifically with COVID, we are seeing this disproportionate impact. And let's tackle a few of those. So we know that existing racial disparities in the rates of chronic medical conditions, such as pre-existing heart and lung disease, increase the risk among minorities for serious complications, and that leads to higher death rates. Additionally, though, we've seen observed disparities in how COVID affects minorities highlight inequities in socioeconomic status, in living conditions, and in access to healthcare. Those who live in poverty, poverty is one of the main reasons here, are experiencing this pandemic very differently. They can't always have reliable transportation to make it to and from a doctor's visit or a vaccine clinic. They need to shop more for basic necessities since they cannot afford to stockpile goods. They don't have the luxury to have someone delivered groceries to their door, nor do they have the resources. Many lack insurance or access to regular medical care. And social distancing itself 
is a privilege. In poor neighborhoods, this is not convenient or realistic because many live in small multifamily homes and do not have the luxury of being able to social distance. What else can we talk about? Well, we need to understand that minorities are overrepresented in essential jobs, transportation, government jobs, healthcare, food supply services, and in low wage or temporary jobs. That may not allow them to telework or to provide paid sick leave, but it also means they're just high exposure areas. Language or educational barriers are some other reasons as well that prevent people from understanding best practices to stay safe or how to access vaccines, how to access reliable medical care. A big one right now is the lack of access to high-speed internet and telephone services. We saw this when we transitioned to telemedicine and a lot of people suffered. We see it now in people being able to sign up for vaccines. How do they know if they don't have access to reliable internet? How do they sign up? And they're beat out by, by folks who are more affluent areas and they get ahead of them. And so those are the main areas that I think impact this and is why we see this at this time. A lot of these factors, especially ones around poverty, wage issues, transportation issues, sometimes extend all the way up to the macro or policy level. What can our listeners who are primarily family planning clinicians on the ground do to help mitigate them for their patients? Well, advocacy is clear. You speak up, do not hear, and sit back down on your couch and do nothing. Be willing to call out systemic and institutional racism when you see it. Be willing to sign up when policy change comes along. Be thoughtful about local state elections and how that is going to impact your patients. I myself dedicate now the last five to 10 minutes of every patient interaction, whether it's in the hospital or in my clinic, to ask folks, what questions do you have about COVID or the vaccine? And I give them that space. I have developed my own mechanism for how to address this. It's a four-step system. The first is to ask, but to do so, removing barriers. Don't stand over hospital beds and look down on patients. Look them in the eye, be at eye level. Speak in a clear voice using understandable words, not medical jargon. And then just ask them in a short, brief way and an open-ended question what their concerns are. Then listen. So the second step is to then acknowledge and apologize. Even as a Black woman, I work in the very institutions that have been responsible for suppressing and oppressing marginalized communities, both historically and currently. So when patients let me know that that is part of some of their hesitation or lack of desire to get a vaccine, for example, I apologize. I say, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for how my institution and institutions like it have contributed to that. You are absolutely correct. Acknowledging that people's concerns and their feelings and their experiences are valid goes a long way to building a trustworthy relationship bidirectionally. And apologizing goes a long way. We know that in medicine, and yet we're not willing to do it when it comes to these sensitive topics. Then I educate. That's the number four step. And I do so again, looking people in the eye and using very clear and easy to understand language. Some of the feedback that we've received over the pandemic is that people do not appreciate coercive strategies and people using scare tactics in their education. You're going to die. You're going to die. If you don't do this, you will die. Your family will die. Your community is dying. It's not an effective communication strategy. So what I do instead is personalize why I chose to get the vaccine. 
And I remind people that I'm not just a physician. I'm someone's wife. I'm someone's daughter. I'm someone's mother. And I talk about all of the things that I know through my expertise, the things I learned because I was also concerned. And then the reasoning behind it, I talk about my personal experience getting a vaccine and what I experienced and what my colleagues experienced in general. I feel like using that can be very disarming because they are already on edge and feel like they're being judged or that you're trying to force them to do something. But at the end of the day, a friend of mine, Dr. LJ Punch, a phenomenal patient advocate and leader in our community, said to me, this is not about convincing people to take a vaccine. Our job is to give informed consent. We are here to give information to folks so they can make the best decision for their health and for their family. And sometimes that means they will not agree. But if we can give people information in a way that they can access, and even if we only change the minds of a few, that's way more than none at all. We've been talking a lot about the exploitation of marginalized communities by the medical establishment, not just in the far past, but that's still ongoing, and how many of them are understandably wary of vaccine efforts. And many of our clinicians understand this, but aren't quite sure how to shape that message. What would be your message to individuals in these communities to sort of maybe help our clinicians to shape their own messaging for patients who have concerns about the vaccines or a general mistrust of the medical system? You know, I try to dispel a lot of the myths around the vaccine. You know, people are concerned that this happened so fast. How do we have a vaccine for COVID in months, but we don't have one for things like HIV since the 80s? And I address that head on. I remind folks that SARS-CoV-2 is only one component of a much wider coronavirus family. We have done research into coronaviruses for years preceding this. Additionally, the mRNA technology used for the vaccine has also been in development for years preceding this. But most importantly, there has never been a time in the history of mankind where every single country, city, government, workplace stopped and focused on this one thing, where all available resources, money and other resources were poured into the development of a vaccine, which already had, like I just said, information that had been accumulated through years and years of research. Past that, I remind folks that from the development of this vaccine to the clinical trials done, these were done by diverse bodies. Dr. Kazmika Corbett, an African-American woman at the NIH, led the development of this vaccine with her NIH team. She was one of the co-leads. The Pfizer, Moderna, and other trials, I sit on a board that houses all the minority physicians in infectious diseases. I'm on the board of directors for it. And I know folks who are involved on the Pfizer side or in the Moderna side or others. But most importantly, none of this gets approved without external advisory boards that have to vet this data to make sure that it is indeed sound and that what came out was safe and effective. And those boards are filled with diverse people from diverse disciplines, not just doctors and, and researchers, pharmacists, uh, public health experts, and people in the community, but also who were diverse. And because of the positive pressure a lot of us applied, even in the recruitment of some of the trials, Certain companies like Moderna slowed down recruitment because they knew they didn't have enough numbers from black and brown communities until they got them to higher, not perfect, but higher levels. I also dispel myths around side effects, around allergic reactions and give factual data. I like to make comparisons. You know, people are afraid of allergic side effects. And we've seen a one in 100,000 
rate of an allergic side effect compared to penicillin, which people take without thinking, and that's one in a thousand. I try to simplify it. So those are some of the things that I do to dispel some of those myths in our communities and that I think other people can do. Straightforward, knowing the facts, knowing that these concerns do exist. But one of the things I do tell people of color is that your mistrust for a system embedded in systemic and institutional racism and white supremacy is valid. But do not let your mistrust for that system preclude you or prevent you from protecting yourself and your family. I used to say trust the science, but even that I was told is not a fair thing to say. Because again, I gave you decades and decades of history where science was directly responsible for these abhorrent acts. So it's it's very condescending to say trust the science to folks where that happened. But what I do say is look for trusted messengers. Who are those people? There are trusted messengers, quite frankly, like myself, a Black woman Im- immigrant infectious diseases specialist who can speak to this, Dr. Kazmika Corbett, a trusted messenger, other physicians or advocates, community leaders. There are community organizations who have earned the trust of these communities for decades, who provide health care, have bridged that divide since HIV and, and in heart disease and diabetes, and they should be the trusted messengers. So Find your trusted messengers, hear what they have to say, and then make the best decision for you. But do not make that decision based slowly alone on your lack of trust on a system that absolutely, absolutely has failed you. That still means that you have the chance and the ability to access reliable information from reliable people. And I would just, you know, it's it's sad how politicized this has become, both parties being guilty of this, because a lot of trusted messengers for people are politicians. And as we've seen, that message now exists along party lines and people do not get accurate information. And so we have to now advocate for the folks who actually do this work by way of their career, who have studied this, continue to study this, do the research, take care of these patients on a day-to-day to be those trusted messengers. Our listeners are clinicians who are located throughout the United States and its territories, quite a large area. What sort of geographic disparities around COVID-19 are we seeing these days in the U.S. and its territories? Well, this has changed throughout the pandemic. In March and April, during the first spikes in deaths, the heaviest cost of the pandemic was borne by just a few places, if you remember. We saw that in New York and surrounding areas where they were averaging more than 50 deaths every day, and on some days, more than 150 people. Nationally, new deaths fell substantially in May and June before rising again in July. And by that point, we were seeing this in northeastern districts that had been hit hardest in the prior months had fallen dramatically while deaths were rising in the South and the Southwest, in Texas, in Florida, and Arizona, where they were registering record numbers of new deaths. While U.S. deaths in this period did not rise as high as during the peak time in April and May, that geographic spread substantially increased during that phase. We saw a fall-off of deaths, again, somewhat close off the summer, but once again up in October. And this again marked a geographic shift in the places suffered the largest number of deaths, where More recently, the region seeing the largest numbers of new deaths have been more likely to be in the Midwest and mountain states. Montana, for example, averaged less than one death per day prior to October, but now 501 people from Montana died from COVID-19 in October and November, which is nearly a tenfold increase. 
But what we're seeing now is that less densely populated areas are now hardest hit. And so while that geography of new deaths has shifted over the course of the pandemic, the types of communities have also changed substantially. And we're seeing a more urban-rural split that disappeared by the end of the summer. And what we're seeing now is the urban and dense suburban areas that experienced high death rates in the early days of the disease also had larger shares of non-white residents than areas that were less hard hit in the spring. The most racially and ethnically diverse congressional districts had about 3.5 times as many deaths on average. But in recent months, what we're seeing is that the rising death rates in more ex-urban and rural areas is becoming quite significant. We're seeing a similar pattern to those seen with urban, rural, and uh, racial composition of each district emerging in the relationship between the partisan leanings of a district and deaths attributable to the virus. So unfortunately, those party lines are now showing that in these more rural, more conservative areas, we're seeing higher death rates from COVID. So I say this to say that it's not a one size fits all. It's shifted through the pandemic. But certainly, while we talked a lot about racial and ethnic disparities, we are definitely seeing geographic lines come to the fore now more recently, where the numbers are much better. Missouri was in a really tough place in August, September, and October. We're now second lowest in the country. But when you start breaking that down in urban compared to rural areas, we're seeing much higher rates in those rural areas. Do we know what some of the reasons are for these disparities or ebbs and flows in cases? And how can listeners help their own patients navigate health systems in their own communities to access the care they need. Yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about that and the fact that it's about how you access your information and where you're going to for those sources. And I think we have to let politics be politics and and center medicine and public health data and research and really encourage our patients to do so. I think every patient has one thing in common. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and We all have different political leanings, but we all have family. We all love our families. Most people are really proud of the communities in which they live and they want to see them do well. So I think leaning into that and really staying away from highly charged areas that will just cause people to put walls up when they think you're attacking them or judging them because of where they're from or the politics that they lean towards. I focus on their individual risk factors if they have them. I focus on demographic risk factors that might put them at higher risk. And I focus on this geographic data as well and giving them the information and then giving it to them in a way where I'm saying, I'm not judging you. This is the information and make the best decision for you and your family. Given that the science, the recommendations around COVID-19 vaccines and strains and recommendations are always changing, where are some good places for our listeners to find that up-to-date information so they can give the best care to their patients. My favorite sites right now are obviously the CDC first. You've got to go where the guidelines sit. You've got to go where things are approved through. So um, I'm a big, big fan of the CDC's website. And I'll be honest with you, I keep it very simple because I think having overwhelmed information confuses the topic. So I go to the CDC I go to John Hopkins has an incredible website that's also very focused on marginalized populations, which is obviously an area of interest for me. So I highly recommend those two sites. And then social media can be dangerous because you can access information from people that are not experts, but it's difficult to access individual experts 
on certain more bigger platforms, right? So when I'm on Twitter, I follow some of the leaders in this area. Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky has an active Twitter page that I follow. Dr. Paul Sachs, uh, Jesse O'Shea, a leading epidemiologist who um, has worked for the White House in the past. These are folks who I follow who have trusted information. And when it comes to the work of Black and Brown communities in those areas, I, I follow trusted messengers such as Dr. Uche Blackstock and her twin sister, Dr. Oni Blackstock, who do a lot of this care. Dr. Nunez Smith, who was appointed by President Biden to lead the equity portion of this COVID-19 push, uh, is also very active. So I, I do both of sort of the old school and the new school. And then I stay up to date with the literature. You know, people are publishing peer-reviewed journals, and I make sure that what I'm saying is not just opinion, but it's based on those facts. So those are the three main ways that I stay up to date. But really, you've got to start at the CDC and then take it from there. Well, we've had a really great, informative conversation about disparities, but unfortunately, our time is running short today. But before you go, would you tell us your top two or three takeaways for our clinician listeners about COVID-19 and disparities that you'd like them to think about going forward? So I'd like to tell people that number one, the barriers and the roots of COVID-19 and the disparities that we see are in systemic and institutional racism that is not just a historic phenomenon, but is real and prevalent in the day-to-day lives of the patients that they serve. Number two, that there are barriers that will get in the way of their patients being able to make informed decisions and to do what's best for their health. And so if you are taking care of these patients, you also have to be someone that's dedicated to supporting, removing the barriers to social determinants of health that we discussed earlier, whether it's transport or social work support to help with insurance, whether it's giving them up-to-date information about where they can go and you yourself staying up to date about vaccine clinics where there's mobile vans. And a lot of times that means having active social work support and staying up to date with what's happening with your local health departments. The last thing I would say is that we are all humans. We all have a huge drive to care and we all care about the wellness of not only ourselves, but our families and our communities and to center that in our messaging at all times. Because at the end of the day, trying to point finger, lay blame, or lean into topics that separate us will only make this worse. But I do thank everybody listening because the fact that you even listened and got to the end of this podcast shows how much you care, so shows how much you want to be part of the change. And for me, that is incredibly encouraging as we move forward in trying to dismantle these barriers for our patients, the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mahdi, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, including previous episodes about COVID-19, search for the Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning's social media on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5, FPTPA 006029-03-00. 
The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.